greetings, everyone. This is Volts for April 29th, 2022. Volts podcast, Nan Ransahoff on how and why Stripe is kickstarting the carbon removal market. I'm your host, David Roberts. In 2019, the payments company Stripe announced that it would spend at least $1 million a year on verified permanent carbon dioxide removal, or CDR. The response was intense, not only from those working on CDR, but from customers, organizations, and companies that wanted to follow suit. There's a lot of money and goodwill floating around these days that isn't quite sure how to have the biggest climate impact. Stripe had assembled a group of experts to scrutinize CDR technologies and companies. Why not just let Stripe invest the money? Well, fast forward a few years. Stripe has now unveiled a nearly billion-dollar pot of CDR money. $925 million, to be exact. A new Stripe-owned company called Frontier will pool money from Stripe partners like Alphabet, Meta, and Shopify, and thousands of Stripe customers who donate a small portion of their transaction fees and make it available to CDR contenders. Frontier is offering what's called an advance market commitment, a guarantee that if companies can figure out ways to verifiably and permanently draw down carbon, no matter the initial price, there will be buyers. This enables companies to get financing and start deploying projects. Stripe's head of carbon, Nan Ransahoff, told The Atlantic's Rob Meyer that a billion is roughly 30 times the carbon removal market that existed in 2021, but it's still 1,000 times short of the market we need by 2050. I thought I would get in touch with Ransahoff and ask her how far she thinks private companies can push CDR in the absence of policy, which technologies are showing promise, and whether Stripe is pushing governments to get involved. With no further ado, Nan Ransahoff of Stripe, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much for having me. There's tons of stuff to discuss here, but I want to kind of want to back up and start at square one, which is what I think uh, a lot of people's reaction are when they first hear about this, which is why is this one payments company uh, <laughs> a world leader on carbon dioxide removal? I don't know that a lot of people see the uh, connection at all. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your history with Stripe and Stripe's history with this whole area of carbon dioxide removal. Why is Stripe so into it? Sure. Um, so for, for context, at Stripe, we build economic infrastructure for the internet. And it's everything from payments to invoicing to, you know, banking as a service. There's lots of different tools that we build for now over 2 million businesses all over the world. Our foray into carbon removal started basically as an experiment back in 2019, where we made a million-dollar pledge to buy permanent carbon removal. And, you know, this was grounded in climate science that we can talk about um, in the future. But essentially, it started as a small corporate commitment. After we made our purchases, we heard from a lot of Stripe users basically saying, hey, we've wanted to do something for a while in climate, but we haven't because it's hard to figure out what to do. If we send you some money, could you go figure out what to do with it? <laughs> and it was that piece in conjunction with the fact that the carbon removal community had almost a weirdly positive reaction to a million dollars because ultimately <laughs> it's not that much money. Yes, that's funny. Which to us just said this field has been really starved for capital and really starved for customers. 
what if we, instead of just putting our own money to this, could pool money from the many businesses using Stripe through something like Stripe Climate? And so when we started, we didn't think this is exactly where we would be, but um, new doors sort of opened as we continued to build stuff. So, but to be clear, like your interest in it and these other companies' interest in it, this is like a an ESG thing. This is like a your your investors and 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 shareholders want to know that you're taking some action on climate, and this is a way to do that. It is, um, you know, Stripe doesn't make any money from this. I think we would sort of view this in the really long run as in line with our macro goal of economic enablement. Right? Climate is perhaps the biggest inhibitor or threat to economic enablement. So right. in the loop, if you take the long view, you know, we are an infrastructure company, we do take the long view. Um, we think that it is in, in line with that. In the short term, we're not making any money off of this. And you're right to say that, um, you know, this is uh, kind of a little bit more maybe philanthropic in nature. Right. Yeah. I, I, I want to sort of return to that question later when we talk about kind of markets and getting markets started. But so you offered this $1 million and this was, to be clear, this $1 million was also offered to purchase buried carbon, right? Not not just an investment in a company, but it's sort of like a, you, you pay for the carbon dioxide removal. Was it the same sort of structure? Yes, that is a very important distinction. So if we back all the way up and just to, to level set from a climate perspective here, the world emits uh, about 50 gigatons of emissions every year. We're going to have to get that down to net zero as fast as possible, ideally at or before 2050 net zero emissions. And to do that, there are two main things we can do. We can stop emitting mm-hmm. or we can pull CO2 already in the atmosphere and ocean out and store it permanently. The world has to do a lot of both. But we are now sort of newly realizing that we are going to also have to do a huge amount of carbon removal, in part because we've done such a bad job with emissions reduction. And when it comes to carbon removal, something that you said is super important, there have not been customers to date. And that's because unlike with energy, energy, there's intrinsic value of the thing, right? Humans use energy and get value out of it. If you're pulling CO2 out of the sky and storing it somewhere, in most cases, that is not useful. And so there haven't been customers. The other problem is that of the very few companies that have gotten started, they're really early and they're really expensive. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Tesla is expensive at the beginning with the Roadster. Right. Solar panels, phones, hard drives, TVs are expensive at the beginning. But over time, as they scale, costs come down and they get cheaper. But because prices are expensive right now, companies don't want to buy them. They would rather go after sort of low-cost alternatives. And as a result... This field has had no customers, which is, to go back to our initial million dollars, why this sort of raised a lot of eyebrows, because this field sort of has been super starved for customers. So we're not making an equity investment in these companies. We are literally buying the tons of carbon that they are removing. You're bringing up some of the bigger, more fundamental questions I wanted to get to, but let's get at it right now. Uh, One of the framing questions that I want to ask around all this, which is, you're right, we need to, you know, the IPCC says we need to stop emitting, which is a huge thing that we're not uh, on track to do. And then even after we've stopped emitting, we have to pull down a bunch of atmospheric carbon because there's already too much up there, period, right now, no no matter what we do going forward. But why, if you're Stripe and you're concerned about climate and you want to do something in line with your values, why focus on the latter side rather than the former side? You know, like the latter is, is some sense futile if we don't do the former, like Agreed. no, no model shows us being able to remove enough to cover continued emissions. Right. So, right. so it seems like, you know, intuitively that the stop emitting part is 
more important or more has more of a priority, sort of more an ur- a more urgent priority. So why go with the latter? We'll underscore what you said. <laughs> emissions, there's no no world in which we mitigate climate change without radical emissions reduction. That should remain the top priority. The reason that we are going after carbon removal or that we started going after carbon removal was not because we don't think that that's critically important, but because we were hunting for high leverage areas where there was a big gap between the need and the focus on it to date. And for better, for worse, the focus on carbon removal until very recently was closer to zero than any other number. And that is not to say it's sort of we're, we're hopefully moving beyond the either or and to the yes and in the portfolio of climate solutions that we're going to need. Carbon removal is one of them, but it is by no stretch of the imagination a silver bullet here. Right. So it's a, it's it's a place where you thought a little a little bit of capital could go a long way, basically. Exactly. In terms of sort of galvanizing things. Exactly. It, then another fundamental question we get around is this whole question of a market, because as you say, like when you're trying to stand up, say a solar market, you know, solar is offering electricity. Electricity is valuable. You're basically trying to get the companies to scale and then the market will take over because the demand is there. But when you're talking about carbon removal, insofar as there's ever going to be demand, it's going to be, I don't even know what the right word is, synthetic, I guess. like Compliance. It's a compliance market. It'll be a compliance thing, right? It'll be you doing it to sort of comply with your ESG or government's requiring. And like, even if you stand it up, there's no market to hand it off to. Like, even if you stand it up, governments have to take it from there, right? Because they are ultimately going to be paying for this stuff. Yeah, that that's right. So if you think about the scale that this market is going to need to be, zoom out to 2050, call it 10 gigatons a year uh, at $100, or even best case scenario, we get it down to $10 a ton. That's $100 billion to a trillion dollar per year market mm-hmm. for buying carbon removal. Global GDP is like $100 trillion. I mean, it's a very it's, a, it's very difficult to imagine the voluntary market like what we're doing today with Frontier getting right. us there. Right. Policy has to take over. And we generally think about the voluntary market as a great way to help these solutions get to first base and to help the market get to first base. We want to make sure that there are enough solutions ready for purchase when policy catches up. But policy does have to catch up. And without that, you're exactly right. The market is very likely to be capped at a pretty low number. Part of me almost wonders if maybe just call it just calling it a market, I guess, is it's not quite a market. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. What, right. Whatever it is. Like it's a it's a, it's the seed of a market. It's like uh you know if you ever talk to a Julio Friedman, I'm sure you have sure. many times he's big into CDR and, you know, he compares it to sort of sanitation, you know, like cities dealing with sewage. And we don't really think of that as a market, right? Even though in theory, the government could sort of have an auction and, you know, have companies compete to have the lowest cost sewage removal, but we don't really think of it that way. And I guess I just wonder like, why, what do we get out of thinking of this in the context of a market? That's an interesting question. So I think that that, the the sanitation model is an interesting one, but it's one of, I think, a few futures that we could end up in. Mm. One is a future where the government is doing federal procurement. The government is essentially the buyer of all of the CDR, which is, I think, the sanitation model that you just outlined using, you know, tax dollars, et cetera. The other 
world that we could land in is one that looks a little bit more like parts of Europe, where the role that the government is playing is essentially pricing the negative externality of a ton of emissions and pushing that on to different entities, in this case, corporate players, or I'm not a policy expert, so we'll not pretend to design a policy on, on this <laughs> conversation, but, but basically fixing the market inefficiency by putting a price on a ton of emissions. But that, that market then does manifest as companies buying the carbon removal rather than just the government. Right. I can't decide if much of importance hinges on that sort of conceptual distinction or not, but but it, but it was on my mind. So you toss out this million dollars, you find a sort of pathetically eager <laughs> market set of market participants. And so you think, well, we could do a lot more of this. And so other companies jump in and soon you're like juggling a bunch of money. And then out of this comes Frontier. So ex explain to us sort of what is the transition from sort of Stripe's initial foray into this, into this sort of more structured frontier thing? Yeah. So about, you know, a year and a half, this was last summer into Stripe Climate. We had, you know, tens of thousands of users contributing a fraction of their revenue. We, our, our team kind of got in a room and said, okay, well, on the one hand, this field has made a ton of progress. And over the past couple of years, we have more buyers purchasing carbon removal. The general awareness of carbon removal has gone up. And at the same time, we are still nowhere near on track to actually get carbon removal to gigaton scale in the timeframe that we need. So we went through this exercise and we said, okay, if we just wanted to get carbon removal on its best possible trajectory, what would we do? And we came up with a bunch of ideas and we killed a bunch of ideas. And one of the ideas that we couldn't kill was this idea of an advanced market commitment. And the idea of an advanced market commitment is borrowed from vaccine development, where if you want, say, a malaria vaccine, big pharma like Glaxo and Pfizer, like why would I spend the resources creating this and deploying this? These are poor countries that aren't actually going to be able to pay for these doses. So this idea back in the mid-2000s was governments and philanthropists would pull money together into a pot and basically say, hey, if somebody can build this vaccine to spec, we will buy X doses at Y price. And that was what they called an advanced market commitment. And they used this on the pneumococcal vaccine. Um, and it worked, uh, estimating to save nearly a million lives. And, you know, we're, we're essentially taking the same concept and applying it to applying it to carbon removal. So the so what the pharmaceutical companies make a calculation about how much they want to invest in R and D, and the idea is just to kind of put a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, so that so that there's certain money if they if they succeed. Exactly, it's basically saying we're going to guarantee that there are going to be a certain number of customers or a certain amount of revenue for you right. if you can build something that looks like you know whatever the specs. Are. It's essentially a way to guarantee that there will be a market to compel suppliers to start building now. I, uh, for my sins, I, I clicked over and read that sort of Harvard Economist's uh, roundup of yeah. <laughs> of advanced market commitments and and how they work. And I wonder it, there's there's one distinction in there that sort of caught my eye, and I wondered a little bit about there's there's a distinction between how you structure one of these things for products that are close to development, say sort of like several companies have sort of viable prototypes, you know, and you're relatively close. You don't know which one is going to win, but you're close versus a far, I forget the exact term, but a distant. far technology, yeah, distant technology target where you don't even know sort of like what the genres of solutions are going to be. 
And I wonder if that distinction made any difference in the carbon case. Like, I'm just wondering sort of how you structure, how you learned from that and how you applied that distinction to the carbon removal space. It's a great question. And there are a couple of differences in the PVC, AMC, and Frontier. So at a very high level, I would generally categorize carbon removal as more technologically distant than vaccines. We've made vaccines before. We know mm-hmm. generally how to do it. Um, right. That doesn't guarantee, of course, that it, that it will happen, but it's a more known process. Whereas carbon removal, we're not totally sure what technologies will even be in the portfolio, let alone which are the ones that are going to quote unquote scale. And there are still, you know, sort of brand new ones. There are. Popping up here and there. So it's not even, we don't even know. We've sort of covered the waterfront yet of, of possibilities. Exactly. There's a lot that we haven't even seen get to the starting line yet. So that's one big difference between the two. Another big difference between the two is in the case of the PVC vaccine, $1.5 billion was enough to be the market. That Mm -hmm. by itself was enough to make this an attractive business endeavor for the pharma companies. In the case of carbon removal, a billion dollars is not the whole market, right? It is a tiny step. (laughs) It is a big and tiny step, depending on how you look at it, (laughs) in the right direction. And the third difference is that, and this is a really important one, in the case of pharma companies, the suppliers are large incumbents that have big balance sheets and access to financing because they've already successfully built other products. They're big businesses. In the case of carbon removal today, most companies are upstarts. They are just getting started. They don't have access to capital. And as a result, the way that we ended up structuring this is a bit different than the vaccine AMC. One important distinction is that Frontier is going to be entering into offtake agreements with carbon removal suppliers. And this is a concept that we borrowed from energy development, um, formerly known as PPAs or alternatively known as PPAs, power purchase agreements. These are essentially a way for suppliers to go and get financing. So let's take Charm as an example of a company in our portfolio that is pyrolyzing waste biomass and injecting it underground as bio oil. Mm -hmm. And let's say Peter, the CEO, wants to go get financing for his next batch of pyrolyzers. He goes to the bank. The bank says, why would I give you money for this? Hmm. Um, Nobody's going to pay for this. So with an offtake agreement, which is basically a promise that Frontier will purchase the tons that Peter delivers, he can go back to the bank and get financing because he can say, hey, I have a customer for this. They've promised to buy this. Now can I have the financing? This is not necessary in the case of vaccines, but it is necessary in the case of carbon removal because he doesn't have an alternately large business that he can use to finance this. So that just gives you a little bit of the of a taste um, of the kinds of differences. One other that I'll highlight is, you know, we are really trying to define the target criteria for Frontier in a way to be technology neutral. We want to make sure that we are inviting a lot of different kinds of companies to try and build at scale here because we are basically the starting line. We don't know what's going to win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some companies and and techniques and methods are closer to the starting line than others. And I wonder, is there any difference in the way your deal is structured? Like, is it just one pool and all companies have equal access? Or is there a difference in the way companies are treated if they are, say, already semi-commercial, like I think maybe some of the concrete uh, sequestration companies are versus, you know, mucking around in the lab. Like, yep. yeah. is there any yeah. difference in how you treat those? We have two tracks. The first track is pre-purchase agreements. And this is for really early stage companies that are just producing their first tons. Essentially, we will give them, you know, $500,000 to buy a certain number of tons at a certain price. But we give it to them now before they've actually given us the tons back. Ah, uh, 
So that's a little a little bit more like an early investment, a little bit more like a... It's like a know. grant, kind of. Yeah. It, yeah, it's a grant where we get something if they can produce it, but if they go you know, out of business or they turn out that it doesn't work, like we have no recourse, we don't get the money back. Right. For larger companies where we're writing a much larger check, this is the second track is structured like an offtake agreement where we only pay when the tons get delivered. So this is a way to de-risk that for the buyer because, you know, we don't have $50 million going out the door, but getting nothing in return. Right, right, right. I want to get into some of the specifics of what some of the companies are. But first, I, uh, you know, returning to the sort of question of the marketness of it all, I wonder, <laughs> you know, a billion, a billion dollars is, a, is, as you say, not like the pharma case where it's the whole market. It's, yeah. it's, it's a drop in the bucket. And so I wonder if when these companies go to get financing, if the sort of limited pool is, you know, if, the, if there's eventually going to be a limit to the financing they can get because the pool of capital is limited and the lenders have no real way of knowing if once that pool dries up, you know, anybody else is going to step forward or government's going to step forward. You know what I mean? It's almost like there's a finitude to the current market that I think feels like could limit um, funding. You're absolutely right. And this initial billion dollars, our hope is that it's the initial billion dollars, right? How can we add a zero to this? Um, how can we then add another zero to this, right? This is a billion dollars over nine years, whereas we're going to need, you know, at least a hundred billion dollars per year by 2050. There's a very <laughs> large, large uh, gap between those two. And I think something you called out is is super important, right? I'm very hopeful that there are some really interesting public-private partnership models here of how can we use public capital to pull in more private capital mm -hmm. to make this market. But you're right. The, a billion dollars does not a market make. It is the beginning of a market. And we have a lot of work to do to give the rest of the ecosystem increased confidence that that pool of money isn't going to dry up. Obviously, you're very, very early days in this. But just sort of based on the reaction you've seen from sort of partners and customers, What's your sense of of how big the purely private pool could get? Obviously, it could get bigger than a billion. Equally, obviously, it's probably going to fall short of the, you know, quadrillions we need by 2050, but it's going to land somewhere in there. So do you, have any, do you have any sense of what its ultimate potential is? That's a really good question. The short answer is I don't have a specific number for you, but the reason that I think that it is meaningfully larger than where we are now is that very few companies have actually started putting money towards early stage carbon removal. And I think that more and more companies are aligning around net zero, right? And the fundamental principles around net zero are one, measure your emissions, two, do as much as you can to reduce them, and three, deal with the rest. Right. The how you deal with the rest piece is pretty <laughs> squishy right now for everybody. And my yes. hope is that some of those funds can, instead of going to sort of traditional offsets, which have questionable value, can come to help early stage carbon removal develop more quickly. I have to believe that there is at least an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude more. <laughs> right, right. And they, I guess we're going to pay more for this than those traditional offsets, some of which are, you know, cheap because they're worthless. They're going to pay <laughs> more for this, but you pay, but, but in exchange, you get a sort of reputationally you're bulletproof, right? Like this is definitely removal here. There's no, there's no fuzzy math around these. That's kind of sort of your promise, right? Like these are guaranteed long-term removals. They're guaranteed permanent removal. 
Yeah, that that is that is sort of the the crux. Yep. Yeah. Can you say quickly? I meant to actually get to this earlier, but just maybe say a quick word about the sort of criteria. You know, um, Stripe says it has a sort of panel of experts evaluating these companies and assessing them based on certain sort of criteria, certain metrics. So can you say a, a little bit about those? Like what boxes do people have to check to qualify to get in here? Yeah. So the spirit of the criteria is essentially to try and characterize the gap that we see in carbon removal solutions today. So we're not looking for mature solutions that already exist, which is largely tree planting and soil carbon sequestration. We're instead looking to fill that gap. We have a bunch of criteria, but I'll call out some of the pieces that I think make this a little bit different from other folks buying criteria. First, we're looking for more than a thousand years of permanence. When you emit a ton, uh, it is permanently emitted, so we want to take it out permanently as well. Two, we're looking for solutions that don't compete for other sources of arable land. Uh, We are going to run out of acres to plant trees far before we hit that six gigaton a year number. So we want to find other ways to store it that that won't compete for, for that land. Three, we're looking for solutions that have the potential to be sub $100 a ton. And four, looking for solutions that have the potential to be more than half a gigaton a year. And the spirit of those is we're okay if they're expensive today and tiny today, so long as we can see a path to them being a relatively inexpensive and meaningfully large part of the carbon removal portfolio. And to be clear, um, none of this is pulling carbon out of waste streams a lot, because this is, you know, people have such confusion about this whole uh, this whole area of carbon removal versus uh, this and that. So yeah. none of these solutions are attached to power plants pulling carbon out of waste streams, right? Exactly. So the language in this field is so messy and we haven't like really <laughs> figured out great things to call everything, but I would yeah. typically refer to that as carbon capture where, you know, you're sticking a module on top of a steel plant and trying to capture the emissions coming out of that. This is not tied to steel or cement or cement production. This is pulling it out of ambient air or oceans. And and so when most people think of that, pulling it directly out of air, they, I think, I don't know that most people have any mental image, actually, most normal <laughs> people, let's say most casually interested people, I think, have heard of the direct air capture machines. They look like those big stacked fans. Yeah. That's the one picture that circulates everywhere. Right. It's, uh, Climeworks is very photogenic. <laughs> right, right. And that's literally pulling it out of the air and running it over some sorbent where it gets captured in something. But uh, point being, there are a bunch of these now. I think, it, you know, more than like they're popping up all the time. Like you kind of have to be sort of actively tracking this field to keep track. So maybe just tell us a few of the, you know, once your expert panel went out and started looking uh, what did you find? What what types of uh, of removal are you funding so far? We are seeing solutions that kind of run the gamut, and we want more. We we want to see even you know more diverse set of solutions. But I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, so you highlighted one direct air capture. Looks like these kind of giant fans that pull in air. They find the four hundred and twelve particles of CO two, separate it from the other million air particles, <laughs> condense those, mix it with water. Uh, So you essentially have fizzy water, and then they inject that underground into basalt rock um, in Iceland where it mineralizes. Um, There's another company called Charm Industrial that is taking waste biomass, so uh, corn stover that gets grown in middle of America, and they turn it into bio oil through a process called pyrolysis, which just heats it up to really high temperatures and turns it into bio oil and then injects that underground. There's another company called Running Tide 
that is seeding rope basically with kelp spores and they float. They, <laughs> what, they fl- what, what now? <laughs> okay. So basically uh, they're, they're kelp sinking in the ocean. So imagine a hundred foot rope that you seed with kelp spores, you drop it in the ocean and over six to nine months, it floats out into the middle and grows. So you can imagine this like a column of biomass Huh. When it gets to maturity, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean because kelp is negatively buoyant. So it will sink mm. and stay there forever once it gets below the thermocline. So these are some of the ideas that we're starting to see. There are. Wait, I just I have to <laughs> You're pause. You're still processing I'm still, this. I'm still, yeah, I'm still on the kelp. You have a <laughs> giant rope that becomes like a kelp garden and then eventually gets so heavy it sinks and then goes down below the ocean deep enough that it's under enough pressure that it basically never escapes. Yeah, it stays down there. And this is... That is wild. One really interesting solution that sort of takes advantage of what nature does really well. Nature does photosynthesis for free and it self-replicates for free. The problem with nature is that it's usually not permanent and it takes up a lot of arable land that we might want to use for growing food, et cetera. And companies like Running Tide are trying to mash together the best of what nature does and mitigate its downsides by using storage on the desert floor uh, of the ocean, the proverbial desert floor, Mm -hmm. um, to store CO2. And I think we're going to start to see some really, really promising new solutions kind of at the intersection of technology and nature. Interesting. So the nature-based solutions are still in the game. They've gotten kind of a bad reputation lately, I think, just because of, you know, the forestry offsets are kind of uh, unfashionable now, but so, so nature's still, this comes back to this. <laughs> we're so bad at naming in this field because there, there's been this sort of false bifurcation between nature and tech, right. whereas, you know, enhanced weathering, which is basically the process of uh, rocks actually, uh, will, will capture carbon proportional to their surface area. And they've been doing this for hundreds of millions of years. They just do it really slowly. So there's a bunch of quote unquote, technologies that are just trying to make that process go faster, right? That is taking something that nature does and trying trying to speed it up. I think that, you know, there are a lot of really promising ideas at the intersection of these two. The thing that we care about is the criteria that we laid out. Are they permanent? Do they take advantage of other carbon sinks that are not competing with arable land? But we are open to anything that could possibly meet those. We don't care what it's called. One question I sort of had, you know, I'm I confess to some cynicism or skepticism about whether governments are going to take over and spend <laughs> billions of dollars on this in, in the end. So I wonder if there are any or if you've ever seen carbon removal that is a sort of side effect or or coexists with something that is of immediate market value. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a solution that in addition to getting paid for carbon dioxide removal also produces something else for which there is a current market. So you might actually grow without relying on this, you know, the philanthropic CDR. Yeah. Yeah. That's typically called, so there's an industry term called CCU, carbon capture and utilization and CCS, carbon capture and storage. There are interesting and uses of carbon removal. Cement is potentially a big potential carbon sink. We don't focus on those because there is a market for those. And Mm. we are doubtful that those solutions are going to be big enough to get to that, you know, six plus gigaton a year number. But let's try those. I just don't think to the point we talked about um, very early on, I don't think that's the place where we can have the most leverage because there already is a market for those solutions. um, So we don't need to double up there. 
am I making it up? I thought I saw a concrete company among your uh, among your recipients. Is that not in your portfolio? Yes, that was um, part of our first round, and we've since sort of revised some of our thinking around sort of how we can. We're constantly looking for ways that we can kind of increase the leverage that we have, and I think that's one of the edits that we've made. Right, right, right. So the promise to these companies is now, I mean, now at least they have the promise of a billion dollar pool, which will theoretically grow over time that they're chasing. And then after that, they are going basically on faith that at some point the government will take over and they will be able to get to scale, scale. Like I'm wondering what is the path to that $10 a (laughs) ton? (laughs) Like that's a, is anyone under a hundred a ton yet? Like where, what's, what's the price range we're looking at? We've purchased carbon removal at up to $2,000 a ton. I would say the kind of the general average is in the like two to $700 a ton range. Right. We have a long way to go. I mean, I think you're pointing out a fundamental truth about this field is that we are building this plane as we're flying it, right? We, <laughs> we are sort of making this up as we go, but I don't really see what the alternative is. We sort of know that carbon removal is an important climate tool to make the net zero math work. And I think there's a huge potential for more private companies to step up here. I think there's a huge potential for governments to play a critical role in building this new market and helping give all these different ecosystem players the confidence to really double down and spend their time and resources on this. But you're right. Up until very recently, the total amount of money that had been actually spent on permanent carbon removal is $30 million cumulative, Mm. which is a joke. (laughs) That's crazy. And a billion dollars is huge in comparison to that. But you know what gives me hope is there's a lot of creative thinking, I think, that we can harness to figure out what the rest of the glide path looks like. But it will inevitably involve both the public sector as well as the private sector. Yeah, and I guess uh, I'm, I was more thinking about the expert panel and their attempt to judge whether companies have a pathway to uh-huh. $10 a, a ton. And, uh, you know, obviously that's – obviously a lot of these companies are so early – a lot of this technology is so early, you can't really model it. (laughs) You know, you can't do like a formal model of it way out. So I'm just sort of curious, like, what does it mean for them to have a path to $10? I mean, I guess a lot of that is just kind of a judgment call, isn't it? So you can model the underlying unit economics for each company and say kind of here's what you have to believe for it to get to $100. Here's mm. what you have to believe for it to get to 50 or 10 and then make a judgment call on whether you believe those things are possible. Um, those are assumptions though, to your point. Mm. These are assumptions that we have to go out into the real world and validate and some of them will turn out to be true and some of them won't. And the way that we've tried to structure with Stripe Climate so far are purchases. We've done three rounds of purchases and have 14 companies. We're the first customer for 11 of them. So we're going super, super early. And we have you know 30 plus experts that, that we work with to help us evaluate these companies. When we give them a purchase agreement, we give them the $500,000 upfront and then a million dollars of a repurchase. But In order to get that million dollars, they have to meet a set of criteria, of renewal criteria. And the spirit of those criteria is to really focus on de-risking the most risky parts of their business. So for some, it will be different depending on the company and depending on what their underlying unit economics or risks actually are. But you're right. This is largely theoretical at this point. 
some of these companies are going to succeed and some of them aren't. And that's okay. Let's learn that now so that we know which solutions we should double down on in 2030. Right. Because I've been I've been thinking a lot lately and talking a lot. And I think everybody in sort of the energy world has been uh, talking a lot lately about learning curves, you know, about yes. uh, about technologies that reliably fall in cost by a predictable amount every time their deployment doubles. And then technologies that don't and how to tell the difference <laughs> in advance between the one and the other, I guess, is the question. Like, which ones could or might or will get on a learning curve and which ones won't? That's a, you know, it's a tricky thing to, to try to be predicting in advance. It really is. Well, this is fascinating. Um, what's next that you've got, you've got uh, you know, you announced with close to a billion dollars. And this is firm commitments from Stripe and a set of partner companies working through this frontier structure, I would guess that the news that you're doing this has alerted a lot of other people to <laughs> to the fact that it's happening and the possibilities involved. And, you, you know, as to what you were saying before, I have to believe there's a lot of companies out there who are sort of big enough that they feel like they need to give back in some way on climate, but don't want to assemble a panel of experts and et cetera, et cetera. So would love to just have something they can draft off of and kind of put their name onto and throw some, a pot they can throw money into. So all of which is a long winded way of saying, <laughs> what is next? Are you, is your door being uh, beat down by other participants who want to jump on? <laughs> yeah. Well, the short answer, we have so much work to do. The, the first thing is if the point of an AMC is to send a loud demand signal to researchers and investors and entrepreneurs, like that demand signal only matters if those people hear the demand signal. So the first thing that we're really focused on is making sure that this initial billion gives as much confidence to the folks who are sort of on the cusp of wanting to do something as possible. Right. Next phase is how do we turn this billion into, you know, <laughs> a lot more money? Um, and to that point, yes, we are hoping to make this something that any company that wants to help meet their own net zero commitments or give to climate otherwise can do so in a really robust way and a really low effort way. We will build the team and do the analysis so that you don't have to. They can come to you and say, we need to reduce whatever. Our our scope three emissions are, you know, XYZ. How much do you want for XYZ? Like that's that's about as simple as it gets, right? Yes. It's a little <laughs> it, so <laughs> it's not it's not exactly that simple, but but that is the the spirit is we will do, you know, we're not setting a price target and we're not setting a ton target. So the companies that contributing have to be a little bit open to sort of meeting the field where it is. Right. But yes, the spirit is when money comes in, tons come out and we will do our best to obsess over spending those dollars in the best way possible. And, you know, Stripe is not making any money off of running Frontier. We're trying to make this as simple and cheap as possible for folks who want to participate. And then I think the sort of hard work is also on the deployment side. How do we structure these in a way that is going to be maximally catalytic for the companies? All of this, all of the AMC, all of the investment that you're seeing coming into the space, all of that has to be in service of helping these companies get started and scale up quickly. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how many tons we actually removed. And so this has to be how do we essentially remove as many roadblocks as possible so that these companies can do the hard work of building so we actually have the solutions that we need to scale up? Right. I was going to say get steel on the ground, but... That's right. <laughs> the proverbial steel on the ground. <laughs> Maybe we instead we should say get get kelp in the ocean. <laughs> kelp right. ropes in the ocean. Right. The new it's a new motto. 
a few pods ago, <laughs> was talking to uh, Michael Terrell from Google, his, the director of energy of Google. And Google is sort of, you know, Google has this big target of 24-7 clean energy. And they just released a, a white paper in which they, you know, they've always been open about the fact that they need policy help to get to this goal. But this white paper is a much more sort of structured, like, set of policy recommendations and a kind of pledge to engage more vigorously <laughs> on policy and and policy development and lobbying and all that kind of stuff because you know they can't get where they need to go without policy. So you're sort of in the same position um you know potentially even more so you <laughs> you know the government really does have to take over this at some point or at least contribute most of it at some point. You know, so all, all of which is a way of asking, what is Stripe's policy engagement? Are you on the ground? Are you in state houses trying to get help for this effort? So far, um, it's been informal. And we've had a number of conversations with, um, you know, Representative Peters and Representative Tonko are putting forth some really interesting CDR bills that we've been in conversation with them about. But the short answer is we are just starting to figure out what our what our plan and our strategy is here. We just hired Jane Flakel, um, who is working in Gina McCarthy's office, and she'll be joining us. Uh, she started today, actually. So um, there's a lot of work that we have to do on the policy side. She's like the Forrest Gump of, uh, of, of clean energy. Every time I turn around, she's, some, <laughs> she's at some new cool job. <laughs> Uh, that does not surprise me. <laughs> it's a good sign that she found you, I guess. She That's already, right. It shows that you're the place to be now. So yes, we have a lot of work to do on the policy side, but uh, we'll we'll stay tuned. Since you're acting as the kind of coordinator and funnel through which a lot of other companies are doing this, you know, you all also theoretically could coordinate, uh, you know, policy lobbying efforts by these self same companies. That could be part of the part of the deal. We'll add you to our team brainstorm. <laughs> yes. I'm constantly telling people to to go lobby. So I, I would <laughs> yeah. I would be a one-note Nancy in those meetings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Nan, so much for coming on. And uh, this is uh, really exciting, uh, really out on the – I literally almost said out on the frontier of things, which would have been <laughs> a horrible accidental pun. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>